0: Hey guys, welcome to the PCHD EMS podcast. My name is Jeff. I'm here with Wheeler and Lane, a couple of our critical care paramedics. We're going to be doing our airway class, the airway class that Lane and Wheeler uh, put on for our paramedics here at PCHD EMS in podcast form. So we're going to be basically going over everything that we do, uh, sequence innovation. Uh, Wheeler likes to call it RSI, uh, but our medical director does not. So um, we're going to be going over they're going to be going over the airway class that they do and um, you guys will be able to see the slides if you're watching on YouTube and I'll put the slideshow show in the notes.
1: Okay, so I guess we're going to jump right into it. Um, so we start our class out with the objectives and I think this is a big change from when Lane made the slideshow or the presentation last time is we don't really get into the seven Ps, uh, but he was really doing a lot of this based off the mindset and then the strategies. Um, so just jumping into it, uh, managing the chaos, pulling the trigger, airway strategies, patient optimization, the process, which is kind of like the seven P's that we touch on a little bit,
2: um, ventilatory strategies, and then special considerations. Okay. All right. So we use the heaven criteria now, and uh, it's basically a, a new and improved lemons criteria. So it's a made by air methods, um, it's a predictor of difficult uh, innovations, possibly difficult innovations. So for every criteria that they add on to a patient, it just increases the odds of it being difficult. Um, but what we try to preach to people is just that we can combat each one of these. And that's kind of how our whole process is geared towards is thinking that every patient has every single one of these and just how do we, how do we fix each one of
0: them? So yeah. preparing for the, the most yeah, possible so difficulty. Worst. Yeah. Right. Worst case scenario. So, and, and we've seen, um, we've already seen improvements in our airway numbers from the last, what, I guess over the last three or four years. Yeah, well, I was gonna
1: correct you earlier because you said this wasn't the best EMS oh, okay. slideshow, yeah, yeah, yeah. but yeah. Uh, you know, our organization's 94% on first pass success rates and I think we owe that to the process. Yeah,
0: so uh, Wheeler, one of the things you guys talk about in your, in your class that I think makes it better than just a, a lecture or a CE is controlling your own emotions, your own your own anxiety uh, that you bring into the call. Um, I know I still, I've been a, I've been a paramedic for 10 years, I guess. Yeah. And I still deal with that
1: every time I RSI somebody. Um, so yeah, so we put this into our slideshow um, because honestly, you know, how Lane was going over the heaven criteria, I think uh, what makes Airways more difficult than seeing those factors is what we actually bring to the table. Uh, and if you've ever heard of George Kovacs, he's you know right up there. Scott Weingard, he's one of the airway godfathers, and he great, gives a great lecture uh, on YouTube. I believe it was like a Smack conference, and he goes into human factors. And this is a direct quote from him: "Is how to avoid shitting yourself when faced with a difficult, difficult airway." Um, and that really speaks true um, because we're all every air, airway is difficult, but if you can't calm yourself down or calm your crew down, the situation gets way worse. Yeah, you might not even be able to find the good. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Um, So he also goes into how to combat the stressors of innovation or airway management. And one is, you know, how to calm down uh, performance anxiety, the lack of deliberate practice, right? Basically mindless practice. And what we tell our guys is if you're going into the training room and the mannequin's laying flat and you're innovating the mannequin, and then you're just walking away, you're setting yourself up for failure, right? You need to use a holistic approach like um, setting the mannequin up on the stretcher at a 90 degree angle, putting a nasal cannula on, a non-rebreather or whatever device you're going to use for pre-oxygenation, getting all your equipment out so The more times you do that, you're gonna build muscle memory, and so you're able to adjust to difficult situations a lot faster than you would if you hadn't practiced, right?
0: So I shouldn't be practicing by just putting the tube in and then not even inflating the cuff and just doing it again, over and over again. Correct. Yeah, that that makes
1: sense. Right, Because that's not how you do it in the real world, right? You don't just intubate a patient and then walk away. So you gotta have a holistic process.
0: In the real world, I have forgotten to inflate the balloon, probably because I've practiced just putting the tube in and then walking away from the patient.
1: Right, and so... We're real big here with everybody, you know, coming up with your own way to do things, right? We all, we're all different. Just making sure that you have muscle memory or you've built muscle memory in your practice of knowing where all your equipment's out because that's something you can control. You can't control what kind of call you go on and what kind of disease process and the uh, type of airway you're going to come in contact with, but you can't control how you set up. Um, so that kind of takes the, the anxiety out of it. Um, and then the lack of team effort and uh, communication. So... As far as that's concerned in airway management, um, it does Lane no good. And I always like to use exam- this as an example. Me and Lane are running a bad call and we're about to RSI patient. Um, and he has to worry about managing the airway. If I can't start an IV and I can't manage to push those pressors or do epi infusions or nor epi infusions, um, that's just a lack of team effort on my part. So we try to run our RSIs like as a
2: team where everybody knows their job to the best of their ability. Yeah. I think on the communication part, it's like it might sound simple to say it or you, you know, assume other people are already thinking everything, speaking everything out loud into existence. I mean, it just keeps everybody on the same page, you know, keeps it moving along nicely. Yep. So in this slide, it's basically just showing that increasing your heart rate. If you're anxious, you haven't been practicing, um, it's you know maybe a pediatric something like that that you don't run very often. Your heart rate can increase, so every, you know the higher your heart rate goes, the less skills, um, you know fine motor skills you lose, and the higher it goes, it just worse it gets. And then try to find something that can calm you down. I mean practicing obviously, but sometimes no matter how much you practice, you might still get a little anxious on that call. So um, doing this box breathing that can help. Um, basically whatever you have to do
1: so this box
2: i do that box breathing every time i pick it up
1: yeah i do too um and it really helps to calm your heart rate down so you can critically think about the call um i've done this numerous times you know i'm not above it uh but basically you know just to explain it if nobody's ever seen it you breathe in for four seconds you hold that for four seconds and then you breathe out for four seconds and hold that for four seconds and you can do this as many times as you can to calm your heart rate back down so you can critically think through that situation so we preach this all the time. It definitely works. So,
2: And uh, an, another way to calm yourself down is use your resources. I mean, we have smartphones and iPads and all this other stuff that um, we can use. All that stuff just to make our lives a whole lot easier. You can look up your protocols, know how to access all your information quickly. Um, we use the HandTevy app here. Um, you can put their age in because you're usually getting an age on the way to a call. So you can go in there and find meds different equipment sizes mm-hmm. um you can Eat even time. find it in milliliters so yeah i mean just using all that stuff and then there's drip calculators use everything you can just to make it easier yeah
0: the, the next party else class yeah you talk about making the decision right. like when to make the decision Wheeler, right. you and i were actually on a call i don't know lane if he's told you about this yet but we were on a call just the other day we were working on the truck together and we were gonna rsi this mm-hmm. patient and we had everything out. We had drawn up meds. We were mm-hmm. ready to go. And we did the, the, the key part of the intubation, which is resuscitating the patient first. Mm-hmm. And then the patient woke up. Uh, we, were, yeah. we were ready to do some cool stuff, and then yeah. we didn't need to. And so we had made the decision. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, making the decision is scary. We, yeah, we made the decision. And then we ended up making the decision again, yeah. uh, the other, the other way. And I think it was obviously was the right decision.
1: But. Yeah. Um, so just going over, uh, the criteria of when to make the decision, uh, is the inability to obtain and maintain a patent airway, right? Obstruction. You have uh, functional obstruction and then pathological obstruction, uh, inability to correct deficient gas exchange. And we tell our guys, if you have a SBO two of less than 90 and an tidal greater than 50, that's respiratory failure You're in it by itself. I'm not saying that you need to RSI that patient, but it does need to be corrected. That's just an example. Um, Inability to protect the airway. And you always hear gag reflex versus inability to swallow. We tell our guys to not ever test the gag reflex. It's just a very poor way um, to see if somebody is able to maintain their airway, right? Because you run the risk of that person gagging and then vomiting and then aspirating, right? You're literally risking exactly what you're trying to prevent. Right. so we tell our guys that they're drooling, or you know, in a, you know, unable to swallow, maybe snoring, respiration, stuff like that. That's a much better way to tell whether somebody's able to protect their own airway. Um, and then this is this is this is the reason, or this next one is where we all live at, right? Predicted clinical de- deterioration. Yeah. Um, you just got to be a good clinician, and be proactive.
0: Yeah, I mean, hey, yeah. so one of the things
1: that that I tell
0: people when they're, you know, like new people coming in, young, young paramedics. And I tell myself too, when I'm on a call, if the ER is going to innovate somebody within the first five to 10 minutes of me being there with that patient, nine times out of 10, 99 times out of a hundred, I failed, you know, like predicted clinical course you get to the hospital and they're going to innovate that person as soon as you walk in the door you yeah. should probably be doing it in the ambulance yeah, yeah i
2: think we've moved away from that i think maybe like five years ago we had like you know a good chunk of our staff like you know we're right across the street or whatever sure. i think we've gotten a lot better where if you know it needs to be done get it handled do it and then get them to the hospital
0: we've gotten a lot more aggressive and i think it's been good yeah
1: yeah, the be proactive, not reactive. And I, I would imagine this goes for a lot of other EMS agencies as well. Um, and where we run into issues at is it's not the RSI process. It's failing to make the decision earlier rather than later. Right. It's always transporting emergent, pulling over to RSI. And then now we're doing CBR. Right? when you should have done it earlier when the patient's oxygen saturations were 100%, right? And being able to predict their clinical course yeah. so saying
0: something like well they're maintaining their own airway
1: perfect that's a great yeah. time to innovate yeah them. that's yeah. a perfect time if they're obviously if they're if they need it <laughs> yeah yeah uh so moving on to our strategies uh it gets a little confusing here uh but we have we teach three three strategies basically right to kind of cover the broad spectrum of emergency area management okay. and so the obviously the first one is going to be rapid sequence innovation um Forgive me, Dr. Northam, You know, he calls it best CMS, they call it sequence innovation. I just, it's very hard, you know, we've taking, been calling it RSI for, for years. Taking the rapid out of RSI. Yeah. yeah. And so basically, we got this definition right off the MCRIP podcast, and it's it's the literally the best definition of RSI that you can you can read. Um, and so basically rapid sequence innovation is the administration after pre and patient optimization, which means you've addressed their oxygen or the auction saturations and you've uh, corrected their hemodynamics right make sure all that's good of a potent induction agent right so in our case it would be a Tomidate or ketamine followed rapidly by a paralytic which would be rock in our case um, without the need for positive pressure ventilation and so we tell our guys that yeah we try not to uh, provide ventilations via BVM because it, ri- it risks gastric insufflation. but if you have to then you have to right um, I just had very rare cases where um, even stage 4 COPDers that I couldn't get their SATs up above 94 with a high-flow nasal cannula and yeah. a non-breather or CPAP, BiPAP. Mm-hmm. Um, so
2: that's that's our definition of RSI. I like it. And I think if you think of, he said we have three strategies. If you think of RSI as like your main go-to, the next two are kind of like you're branching off to to combat issues that you could be having from that normal sequence that you do.
1: Yeah, and so delayed sequence innovation, right, and I think this has really hit uh, the last few years, you know, with uh, delaying the sequence for pre-oxygenation, and basically it's just when the RSI sequence is broken down to allow for pre-oxygenation, right, so uh, I like to give an example of you have a patient who is intolerant of the preoxygenation process. Like maybe they're combative due to a TBI or maybe they're anxious, secondary to hypoxia from COPD or CHF. Pulling everything off, right. pulling out IVs. Right. Yeah. They're just, they're not letting you pre-oxygenate. Um, so you give them a dissociative dose of ketamine, which in our case would be one mg per kg. Um, I like to tell people you can always give less um, and then see how it works and then give more if it doesn't work. Yeah. Right. And so basically... Uh, You calm them down with the ketamine, put your um, pre-oxygenation, like non-breather nasal cannula back on and allow for that pre-oxygenation process. Uh, The great thing about delayed sequence innovation is after you're done setting up for the innovation, all that, you can reevaluate the patient. And you you can be like, okay, this patient's good to go. Like they're doing a lot better, right? You can just go to the hospital. But if you need to proceed with it, you can always proceed with
2: RSI. I think we always want everybody to. We do want everybody to set up for RSI, whenever you do, even if you think you're going to be doing DSI, just so that if there are any issues, you're already set up, you're ready to go.
0: So one of the things, and I I don't remember if you guys talk about it later on, but one of the one of the benefits of DSI that Weingart talks about, I believe, is um, you can you can be sure that your patient is sedated before you paralyze them. I mean, mm-hmm. like, you know, you're, yeah. you're doing that, you know, Yeah, you're not risking doing.
1: anesthetic awareness,
0: Yeah, which you re- is,
2: you know, that's huge, yeah. right? Yeah. yeah. We'll get into the timing of medis- or medications, but like for ketamine that we use for DSI, we don't use Atomidate, but for ketamine on, in that instance, we'll, if you gave half a milligram, a kilogram, you know, you reduced your dose a little bit and it did work pretty well. Well, then maybe that's what you use, you know, depending on how long it's been, how good it worked and then just okay. kind of go from there.
1: Yeah, so we like to use the example just to piggyback off what Lane was saying, is let's say you gave the 1 mg per kg to dissociate them to allow for preoxygenation, right? Well, if it's been 5 minutes um, and the patient's ready to be innovated, you could just go ahead and give the paralytic and then go on about your day, right? Finish the RSI. Um, but let's say you gave that 1 mg per kg and now it's been 10 minutes. Well, we know that raw, or sorry, that ketamine is off in 12 to 15 minutes. Yeah. I would go ahead and redose them with an induction dose of ketamine followed by a paralytic. And then finish
2: the RSI. And if they, you know, if they do turn around completely, you can, not, yet, yeah, you can, abandon, can it. abandon it, but that might be the best time to continue with your RSI. So just be really sure that yeah, you know, it's I've going seen, in that direction.
0: I've seen several times uh, this year, uh, you know, you fix the hypercarbia, you fix the hypoxia and you've got to awake a times four patient.
1: Yeah. Turns them completely around. So. Yeah. Um, and okay, this is what we tell everybody for uh, our failed airway situations. So uh, it's basically called rapid sequence airway and it's the same process as RSI except for uh, you don't innovate, you put an gel down. So you're not in the patient's airway with a laryngoscope, risking critical hypoxia during the intubation attempt. And so um, the way we tell everybody or what we tell everybody is despite all efforts, right? Meaning you've tried to pre-oxygenate this patient with at least a high flow nasal cannula and a non-rebreather, um, or sorry, not a non but a BVM with PEEP added, and you can't get their oxygen saturations above 94% or 94 or better, mm-hmm. right? That is a failed airway. And so we just tell people to push the drugs and then put an eye in place.
2: Yeah, so our new number is from in the past, it's they have to have at least 94% or greater for us to innovate.
1: right? Um, not to get this confused, and I just want to explain this because uh, our guys seem a little confused about this. This, isn't, this doesn't mean you show up on scene and the patient's oxygen saturations are 60%. You put a nasal cannula and non-rebreather on, you can only get them up to 80 You need to exhaust all efforts of pre-oxygenation, and I think your end goal would be BVM, high-flow oxygen, uh, nasal cannula, high-flow, and maybe a little peep added to it, right? Yeah.
0: So. Maybe just open a bottle up too. Just kind of get the get the
1: yeah. the room air, yeah. the room yeah. Air, yeah. air set up a yeah. little yeah. bit. You know. Yeah, we're all breathing it in. We're all yeah. <laughs> Um, So this is in red for a reason. Um, so the sedation facilitated innovation. We do not do that here. I'm not saying that this isn't useful and ever. This isn't useful somewhere else, but we just don't use this here um, because it's associated with 60% first pass success rates by just giving a sedation to intubate somebody, right? The whole reason you give a paralytic is so you can render the patient completely flaccid, you can manipulate the airway to get the, ET or the, get air the air intubation. The vocal cords aren't moving while you're trying right, to intubate them, Right, yeah. um, And so, it might
2: be called five other names, awake innovations to kind of fall in this category. There's probably a place for them, but for here, we wanna make our lives as easy as possible.
1: Yeah, uh, the one, what we like to tell everybody in reference to this slide is we watched a video with awake innovation and the patient, I believe got two to 300 milligrams of ketamine and it was pro sedation facilitated innovation, but they couldn't get the innovation for 10 minutes and they were like, see the patient's oxygen saturations aren't dropping, but the patient was also gagging and they didn't have an E T tube in place. Yeah, right. The patient
0: also now has PTSD. So.
2: Right. So. so, I think if you've made the decision that they need to be innovated, we want that process to be as easy as possible. Yeah. And, not rapid, but, you know, in a timely manner. So yeah,
0: one, one thing that I've heard, uh, as a proponent of, you know, people who are for you know, pharmacologically assisted, uh, sedation yeah. assisted intubation. Yeah. well, you know, if you can't get the airway, then you, they're, they're, they're maintained on their own. It's like, hang on a second. So you needed to take the airway, you know, yeah. and so, and so you didn't do use a long acting paralytic. You just, you know, you just sedated them and you tried to innovate them, and now you're just gonna stop. Like they still have yeah. to have their airway managed, yeah. whether they're paralyzed yeah. or not. The airway they're... didn't
1: magically just get better. Yeah, exactly. Right? So, yeah. Okay, so failed airway versus crash airway, right? Um, so our failed airway um, is two failed innovation attempts or unable to maintain O2 saturation greater than 93%, right? You are now in a filled airway. Um, so if you have a spontaneously breathing patient who you missed twice and their oxygen saturations are not a, or 94 or greater, right? That would be an RSA situation, right? obviously you would um, exhaust all efforts of pre-auctionation um, and then crash airway right this is what we like to tell our guys is you are forced to act like a rapidly closing airway um, a, burn, a burn patient right a burn patient or anaphylaxis um, obviously like when you're hearing Strider or especially when Strider is going away as Lane likes to tell our guys um, where not saying you Don't want to get vital signs and you don't want to pre-oxygenate but airway takes priority over all everything else right Um, and so what we teach our guys is it would be a double setup where somebody's gonna try to innovate while somebody's cracking at the same time Um, but you would still push meds and our guys you know and and me too like it kind of didn't make sense to me it's like well why would you give a paralytic not knowing that you're gonna get a tube Mm -hmm. and uh, what's scarier what's gonna kill the patient fastest a closed airway or a paralytic right it's going to be a closed area absolutely and i can't i can't imagine not taking a look on every patient especially if you kind of play it safe-ish when you have somebody else cracking at the same time and so we tell our guys you know basically first one to the trachea wins Mm -hmm. you know um one these are pretty rare and it's kind of a crappy situation to be in but um that's kind of what we teach our guys as far as so, concerned.
0: just to clarify i mean like you're probably not cutting while somebody's manipulating the trachea with a laryngoscope correct but you've got a laryngoscope you've got it clean mm-hmm. you're right there you've got your 60 tube you're yes. literally about to cut right, right and they as soon as they say yes or no yes. you're going for it right, right. so right. you
1: stabilize the trachea with your non-dominant hand you have a permanent marker you've already marked your landmarks you have a scalpel and dominant hand yeah. you are ready to cut as soon as they don't get the innovation yeah. right.
2: And on the, you know, say you were trying to do the RSA situation, this could kind of fall in that same category because some patients aren't the, you know, a supraglottic airway is not going to be a definitive airway for a burn patient and a patient. Like you might not be able to get their oxygen saturations up high enough, but that eye gel is not going to work. You're going to have to. Yeah. Yeah. We can't, you know, predict every single call, go over every single call, but... Most of these, all these yeah. things that we just cover, all these strategies can get you about 99.9% of it. Yeah, yeah.
0: It's that, it's that 1% that really it's that gets 1%. you.
2: Yeah. <laughs>
0: In one of the other episodes that I did with Ash and Art, uh, we went over briefly having to RSI somebody who was critically unstable. Mm-hmm. And how we just, the fact that we took our time and you know resuscitated first probably kept the guy from coding. So you guys talk about patient optimization, so yeah. go into that a little bit.
1: You know, we have to fix hypoxia and we have to fix hypotension, right? So you have to resuscitate before you innovate. Um, you can't rush in missteps. This is probably why Dr. Nortime, our medical director, took RAPID out of, you know, RSI, yeah. right? Because people were rushing, and you look at this guy right here. They're skipping everything, and they're pushing drugs, and they're yeah. innovating while looks somebody's like, hypotensive or they're hypoxic. Looks like he's winning, but I mean... Yeah, I mean, don't get me wrong, dude. And, <laughs> uh, you know.
2: I mean, it's probably, you know, it can be easy to get excited on a call and you're like, hey, I know they need to be our side. And you're like, okay, I'm drawing up my meds. Going to push them, get the innovation. Yeah. You need to step back, kind of look at everything, make yep. sure everything's good to go. Right. And go from there. This is why EMS gets
1: scrutinized because we push meds and we go straight to innovation, yep. right? And the patient ends up dying, right? And it's like, okay, should we even be doing this? right? We, so, we like to
0: do the cool stuff. and Right. right. Yeah, I mean, I, I like to call it out before I actually get to the med-pushing part. I, I like to include everybody right. in the back of the ambulance, like, hey guys, yeah. we have, you know, full is this, blood pressure is this, we've got this, this, and this equipment. Yeah, it sounds does like any, you took our airway course. Yeah, it does, yeah. it does. Uh, you know, does anybody have anything else, you know, any, any other ideas? Oh, that? yeah, no. And there's obviously
2: some, like, situations where you need to be quick on your scene times, but... On not, you know, skipping steps, you know, pre could take 10, 15 minutes, and then mm-hmm. managing their blood pressure could take 30 minutes, you know, to get a good blood pressure to be able to push your meds and innovate them. So yeah. you know, sometimes it you could be on scene an hour before yep. you end up R signing them.
1: Yep. So hypoxia den emergency management is a feared complication and is associated with basically a two times increased odds of peri innovation cardiac arrest. Right. That doesn't scare you, I don't know what, what does. Um, so you don't innovate when
2: somebody's hypoxic. All right. So the oxyhemoglobin dissociation curve, it's a mouthful and there's a lot to it, but the main things we try to get across to our guys is that this is why we do not, um, intubate somebody with low oxygen saturations. So on the left side of the screen, it's SpO2 and how it correlates with the PaO2. So we monitor SpO2 and, uh, PaO2 is basically just the oxygen arterial blood. Um, so, like we said, we don't want to innovate somebody that's less than ninety four percent. But this graph, it's more of like a S shaped, sigmoid shape. It's not straight down. It's not linear. So a drop from a hundred to ninety percent doesn't drop at the same rate as it does from like ninety to eighty percent. Um, that's because the farther it goes down that graph, um, oxygen starts getting kicked off of the hemoglobin at a faster and faster rate. So. One thing, one thing to consider is whenever you have um, them on the monitor and you're looking at the SVO2 and somebody's calling it out, they're like 98, 96, 94, it's dropping and then you have pulse ox lag. So if it's about 30 seconds that it could be delayed and that could even, they could already be in the 80s so and rapidly declining. So we wanna, you know, that's why we hit pre-optionating as much as we do.
0: It looks like a roller coaster to me. It looks yeah. like you're about to like, you know, you're about to like put your hands up and yeah, be
1: like, yeah, in a bad way, like not fun. Yeah, can you over right and left shifts? I'm just kidding. We're not gonna do that. Um, so,
2: now you do that. I want you to talk to me about two, three <laughs> Um uh, So uh, the safe apnea period, or AKA time to desaturation, um, it's basically. Once, in our case, once the paralytic hits, how long are they going to be, you know, not get hypoxic? They so 94. Yeah. So, um, they did this study. I think they had pre-oxygenated these patients. They gave sucks. And then how long, you know, they had an adequate oxygenation. So, obviously, if they're sick or obese, they're going to have shorter time to desaturations. Um The way we can improve that is by pre-oxygenating and... There's a lot of factors that can cause this to decrease if they have any kind of lung disease. Um, if they're obese or, or they're pregnant, pregnant, that can just decrease. It's putting pressure on and it's decreasing the lung volume. Um, so there's a lot of factors that can decrease your safe apnea time, and preoxygenating it increases it.
1: Yeah. Um, so, preoxygenation, okay? Um, high flow oxygen be nasal cannula and non-rebreather at flush flow rates for at least three to five minutes to allow for nitrogen washout, right? So I think most of us here has, you know, know what nitrogen washout is. So basically you have about 78% nitrogen in your lungs, which is the same thing in the ambient air. You try to wash all that nitrogen out and replace it with oxygen. So you increase your safe apnea period, right? So they stay above 94% during the innovation temp as long as they can, right? Um, in addition to that position, Position your patient upright. Uh, Anytime a a patient's laying flat, they lose 30 to 50% of their tidal volume. So one of the first things you should be doing on a patient that you think you need to RSI or maybe going down that route is sitting them up as high as possible to get their weight off their diaphragm so they can take good tidal volume breaths in addition to high flow nasal cannula and non-rebreather for pre-oxygenation. I think that's I think that's made a big difference. I mean,
0: I, I don't think it was very long ago where it seemed like every time I saw somebody or I intubated somebody, you know, clear the stuff off the head of the stretcher and just drop it down all the way yeah. flat, and then you're you're intubating. And now yeah. I don't see anybody do that. It's, it's system wide. Yeah. We're, we're I think we're really good about positioning now. Yeah. And I'm gonna
1: jump ahead here in Lane's probably gonna get mad, but um, even when you intubate, they should be 30 degrees, and you should leave them in that position all the way to the hospital. If yeah. The hospital wants to lay them flat, then that's that's their game, but. Uh, we want to be successful, we're in the back of a truck, and like it's not easy, right? Yeah. So we can try to make everything as easy as possible for us. Um, and then also, you know, if your patient's not responding to an asylhenial or a breather, maybe you need to add non-invasive
2: positive pressure ventilation.
0: Right. BVM with people, like right. you are talking about.
2: Right, maybe yeah. BVM with PEEP, right? Um, on the uh, three to five minutes, that's for even if they're already 100% before you slap oxygen yes. on them. Right. Um, and if you walk into a house and you know that they might be RSI or they're having difficulty breathing, start pre oxygenating immediately. Mm-hmm. But that's not just once you get to the truck and preparing.
1: Yeah, I've always jokingly told everybody, like, the nasal cannula should be turned up so far that it looks like a king cobra on somebody's face, right? Um, and I was always joking, but I was dead serious about it, right? right. Turn it up as, ho- as high as it'll go. Um, and we're going to go over what flush rates are. Got to tape it down. You know right. Yeah. <sighs> so the way we do our pre-oxygenations is it's always a high-flow nasal cannula in conjunction with another device, whether that's nasal cannula, non-rebreather, maybe nasal cannula CPAP, BiPAP, nasal cannula BBM, right? Um, and it's going to serve two purposes, and we're going to explain what that is later.
2: So nasal cannula at there 15 liters per minute is, you get like 70% or 40% FiO2. Yeah. If it's an on breather at 15 liters per minute, you're only getting like 70% FiO2. So turning it up, you know, it takes like two or three spins on our regulators to, um, to get up to 15 liters per minute you can, it has another two or three turns in it so yep. turning it all the way up like it said in the last two slides you can get near 100 on both of those so
0: what you're saying is once the bubble is at the top of that little chamber yeah. it's got more on. room it just yeah, doesn't on look on like on. it so, so it
2: says 40 to 60 liters for the per minute, people
1: watching or listening um for the glass flow meters that are on the, that are on our slideshow if you look down at the very bottom it'll say 40 to 60 liters per minute Right. So it goes way above the 15 liters per minute that that little ball goes up to. Right. And that's called flush flow rates. Like Lane was saying, turn that dial till it goes all the way up till it stops. I'm not saying I learned that today. Yeah. But I learned it more recently than I'd like to say. (laughs) Yeah. And so like Lane was saying, if you have a nasal cannula at 15 liters and you're getting 40 percent FiO2 versus you turn it all the way up and you're getting near 100 percent FiO2. Right. That's going to be way better. And it's going to increase that
2: safe acne period for your innovation attempt. I think with some of your patients, like, you know, you can get away with doing 15 and 15, but if we're trying to make everything simple and yeah. do it the same way every time, yeah. cranking it up so that whenever you do have that patient that, yep. you know, very hypoxic, it was hard to get them up, that you don't miss that step.
1: Does this go back to treating every, every airway like it's difficult? Uh, it, sounds like it, it, it sounds like it. I think it does. <laughs> uh,
0: I may be stealing else Thunder from later on, but... I think it's worth clarifying that when you're talking about nasal cannula, you're talking about a regular nasal cannula. Yes. Uh, the um, entitled cannulas that we have that come that, that match up with our life pack fifteens. Yes. So not, not working.
1: Yeah. Jesse's yeah, uh, G- G- being a little passive here because a couple years ago he taught us uh, I believe it was about four years ago he taught us that a entitled nasal cannula um no matter how high you have the flow meter turned up to, only delivers six liters per minute, right? Because auction isn't coming out of the prongs, it's coming out of the little frustrations around the nose piece. Which right? a partner
0: of mine at a previous place of employment yeah. showed me and I absolutely she blew my mind. I yeah. was like, Okay. Yeah, because I've not. been
1: pre-oxidated within top names canyon for years. I called her
0: a liar. Yeah. I was like I was like, that is absolutely not true. You're and then she got a she got a flush and pushed it through that entitled thing and I was like,
1: Oh my gosh. Yeah. Okay. All right. Yeah so if you are going to get your entitled reading which is very important um but you are going to pre-oxygenate lane teaches everybody to double stack yeah. so if you have a nasal cannula or entitled nasal cannula put it on first and then stack the regular nasal cannula on top of it or vice versa whichever you want to do it seems like a lot um but remember you know you're the success in rsi is in the details
2: and these are very small details that you have to do and we want those trends on the end titles, so we do want to get a reading but if you end up putting, go into CPAP, BiPAP, or BBM, you may need to take that end one off just to make sure you're getting a good seal. Yeah. Yeah.
1: So just to clarify with our listeners, it's always, um, or what we use, it's always a nasal cannula at flush flow rates in addition to another device. So yeah.
2: non a breather, turned all the way up, uh,
1: CPAP, BiPAP, or BBM.
2: So yeah, we have the CPAP Bi-Level, BiPAP, so save. So they're auction-powered. Yeah. Um, biggest thing is coaching your patient through it, uh, getting a good seal, and continuously checking that seal. Because yeah. if you're not getting you know, at least five on Some there, it's the a pressure. seal. Yeah.
1: So the Apnea BVM CPAP, uh, North Time went over this first time I ever heard it, but it was pretty cool. And actually, George Kovacs has a video on it on YouTube if anybody wants to go out there and look it up. But basically it's a way to give your patient a little extra PEEP and oxygenation or a little CPAP with the BVM without providing ventilations. So the process is you stick a nasal cannula on the patient, turn it all the way up, take a BVM, put a PEEP valve on it, hook it up to oxygen, turn it all the way up, and hold the mask to the patient's face, do a good jaw thrust, and whatever you have your PEEP set at is what CPAP you're delivering to that patient. So if you have your PEEP set at five, if you have a good mask seal, it, you'll be getting a CPAP of five without risking gastric with a uh, ventilation, right? So the way Wayne likes to describe it is: let's say you had trouble getting somebody up above ninety-four, right? And you don't want to give them ventilations, but you also don't want them to de- to desat on you. Um, you push your meds put that on, just like I said, and yeah. then hold that mask real tight to him, And that just helps recruit alveoli and helps oxygenate and all that good stuff. So you're using the
0: BiPAP as, or excuse me, you're using the BVM as CPAP, and then yeah. if you need it, yeah, yeah, that way you're not having to get a different device. Yeah.
1: Um, I tell, we tell all of our guys, if you're not doing a jaw thrust maneuver with a BVM, right, you're not giving adequate ventilations because when you do a jaw thrust maneuver, it lifts the trachea, or sorry, the epiglottis right off of the glottic opening. so. Your ventilations are going down the trachea versus going into the esophagus
2: i think we've you know heard a few times about people putting the bipap on or asking if they could put the bipap mask on and then hooking up bbm to that if you're not doing a mask seal you know doing the jaw thrust with it then it's not it can close that airway just like that video showed
1: Okay, so the bad ma- bag valve mask, we recently switched to these. Uh, these are our adult PD non-rebreathers that give a max side of volume of 500 mils. It's so also they got a pop-off valve. We don't need 1,500 mils? No, we're, yeah. we're going to go over that, man. But I, I kind of miss the old bags just because it really feels like you're doing something yeah. when you squeeze it with yeah, both hands, right? You're getting somewhere. Um, you just give them 60 yeah. breaths a minute with 1,500 yeah. mils. It's fine. Um, what we like to tell our guys with this BVM is uh, not to get too anxious when you got to bag somebody. You know, maybe it's in between innovation attempts or maybe it's for pre-oxygenation. We like to tell them that no matter how many times you squeeze that bag, it doesn't increase oxygen saturations. There's only two things that increase oxygen saturations. That's the concentration of oxygen that's coming through your tank, which is 100%, and PEEP, right? There's only two things. So if you squeeze that bag 60 times a minute, that does nothing for your patient. Um, And also it risks gastric insufficiency. So if you're going to provide ventilations via BVM, nice slow breaths every five seconds over one second right um don't mm-hmm. squeeze it forcefully because it doesn't take much pressure to open up the esophagus and for a ventilation go straight into the esophagus so um was it 20 centimeters of water yes yeah, 20 yeah. centimeters of water and you know it's not instant like like lane was saying earlier on the pulse ox like it's lagged, so it might take you a minute or two maybe three minutes to start seeing an improvement in your oxygen saturations but as long as you're doing two thumbs down technique with two person, right? Connected to high flow, maybe add a little PEEP to it. You got a good mass seal,
2: just relax. You're, they're gonna come up, right? They're gonna come up. Yeah. I think we like telling people, you know, princess breaths on giving that ventilation so yeah. that they don't just forcefully get it in there and, you know, rapidly give the breath. so. Yeah.
1: So PEEP, um, here's the benefits of PEEP. It increases functional residual capacity. Um, it's kind of a mouthful, but basically functional residual capacity is the remaining volume of gas in your lungs after exhalation, right? Yeah. This is where we affect all of our pre-oxygenation, right? This is where all the good stuff is when we're washing out the nitrogen and all that stuff. Um, we, it maximizes alveolar recruitment. I think everybody's seen where they, you know, hook it, put an ET tube in a pig trachea connected to lungs, yeah. and then you add peep to it. I and love you that video. turn yeah. it down and it de-recruits. Um, it decreases airway resistance, right? By kind of stinting the airways open. Uh, it re- reduces ventilation, perfusion, mish- m- mismatch. Uh, the things you have to be careful with PEEP is it doesn't inter- uh, increase endothoracic pressure, which is why we don't use it in cardiac arrest, right? Um, and with that endothorac- increase in endothoracic pressure, it decreases preload and cardiac output. So although it's relatively safe, if you have somebody who's borderline hypotensive or maybe you have a soft blood pressure, I would just be cautious with it. So, but if you need it, you need it. Yeah.
2: And then. I mean, oxygenation, it's kind of like a another step after preoxygenation, so or during it. So, you know, we want to leave that nasal cannula on at the flush flow rates even whenever that paralytic hits. So you're removing the non breather, the bipap, or remove the BBM out of the way, and you're still letting that oxygen go. So even though they're not spontaneously breathing, you're increasing such a high concentration of oxygen all the way down to the alveoli and it's diffusing, you know, into a yeah. lower concentration into yeah, the blood. I can- yeah, so, so leave the nasal cannula on. So oxygen
1: reserves, so adequate reserves, right? If you have a patient who's near 100%, right, obviously you don't want to do uh, ventilations via BVM. Um, but also, just because they're at 100% doesn't mean you won't have to provide ventilations. Um, just be cautious. So if a patient has limited reserves, which is way, the way we describe it as 94 to 97%, you might need to add some non-invasive positive pressure to that patient. Um, and if they have no reserves less than 94%, you are gonna have to provide BBM or positive pressure ventilations, whether that's by BBM, CPAP, um, in addition to a high-flow nasal cannula.
2: And remember that SpO2 is a delayed vital sign, like we were saying earlier. Um, we got your probes on our life packs now, so think they said that it can read like 10 to 15 seconds you can get a reading um never fails that if you use the finger probe one that if you, you know, blood pressure cycles and you see a drop <laughs> yeah. it takes a few seconds for someone to realize that on? so use that ear probe works faster and kind of misses that issue but if they're hypotensive hypothermic that can cause problems um yeah. carbon monoxide if they're like in a house fire or something like that we got the uh, rainbow sensor. Five hundred
1: and twenty percent higher odds of per cardiac arrest if you innovate a hypotensive patient defined as a systolic blood pressure of a hundred or lower. Right, that's pretty scary. So um, you have to resuscitate your hemodynamics or a patient's hemodynamics before you push induction agents. Right. So hemodynamics, uh, your normal map is, you know, 70 to 100. <coughs> and if you feel, you know, you want to calculate that, the formula's right there on the screen. Um, hypotension is often preventable and very predictable. You know, you can oftentimes walk into a room, if somebody's pale, diaphoretic, maybe they're having a stimuli, that patient's got a good chance of going into cardiogenic shock. Or you walk into a nursing home and the patient is GCS of three, Kipnick, right? uh warm to the touch you're like oh i better check her blood pressure real quick um so when you're resuscitating patients and uh, i can't remember where who helped us get this information it might have been um i think it was scott weingard on his smack uh airway that he did on youtube or the class he uploaded to youtube um he does a great part or a great lecture on he says um not only do you need to fix the blood pressure, but aim for a higher map. So when you do push your induction agent, it drops it down to a more normal level, if that makes room, sense. You got room
0: to play with. Right.
1: Yeah. So we like to tell our guys, like, let's say if you had a septic patient who's 70 over 40 and you've given two liters in addition to norepi, like I wouldn't aim for 90 or hundred. I would aim for 140, 130. So if they do drop, mm-hmm. they drop to a more normal level, not to, you know, 50. So, so always aim higher. For your blood pressures, um, and then also what will change your hemodynamics is switching from a negative pressure to a positive pressure. I.e., like you switch them, up, you intubate them, and then switch them over to a ventilator. You're providing bag mask, bag mask ventilations. So it just increases increases in the thoracic pressure, which pushes down the heart, decreases cardiac output.
0: Yeah, and for most patients, that's not going to be even noticeable. But no. the people that are that sick, we're talking sick, about sick yeah, patients, yes, yeah, that are already kind of on the on the edge. Yeah.
2: Yeah so try to get two IVs on you know our patients especially if they're critical and we tell our guys like if you miss one IV and they are that critical jump to an IO mm-hmm. yeah. um we go humoral head or proximal humoral yeah humorous and femoral yeah. there you go
1: distal femur and proximal I think I go. think
0: Wheeler started more IOs this year than I filled up my car so, yeah you know
1: uh, what I mean like, yeah we do IOs a lot well one you know and, and we learned this over the last year being under best um is that you can get five liters a minute out of your humoral head and your distal femur so if you have a sick patient you can't get an IV on um, who cares about starting an IO you know we need to get out of the mindset of it being an invasive procedure like who cares at that point um, you know your overall um, goal is to not kill your patient right? if they need to be resuscitated they need to be resuscitated and you can do that with an IO I promise you yeah. um, so, so like, start fluids um as far as blood products are concerned I'm pretty happy that now we're carrying prbcs so if you yeah. have somebody in hemorrhagic shock or uh you know maybe a gi bleed you know we can start giving uh blood products um uh push dose pressors as well for a treatment option to get uh, somebody's hemodynamics up i've noticed here lately now that we got push those pressors, that people are drawing them up prophyl- prophylactically mm-hmm. just in case shit goes down yeah
2: you know yeah having that um, syringe on the on the oh, actually yeah. that it's well
0: labeled well labeled, uh, well labeled is, right? is very is very handy yes Um uh, maybe and
2: being a good team player i mean knowing how to mix that together yeah you know anybody in the truck doing that yeah. just having it available in our infusions
0: i feel like the labeling thing is really oh, really no, worth huge. mentioning because man I've, I've been on calls you put two syringes down oh, and yeah. you're like
2: yeah, yeah.
1: Do we need to just push them at the same time now? Yeah. Like, <laughs> you know, and North Town's probably going to kill me, but yeah, you need to label your and rock, you know, or maybe your ketamine and rock, but you really got to change. You really got to label that epi. The automated rock, yeah. or you jack those up like yeah. 60, yeah. Seconds in 60 seconds to 60 seconds. You know what I mean? Exactly. Um, yeah, pushing the whole syringe at epi might be a little awkward. Yeah. So, so here's where we kind of get into the seven P's, and uh, I know, I feel like it could be. I think we could have gone over a little bit more on the seven Ps, but like, I think we just kind of advanced in our airway management yeah. um, to where we don't really hit it too much, but we go over the process nonetheless. Um, so as far as pre- preparation goes, right? Address reversible causes. Um, the first thing that should hit your mind when you're about to take somebody's airway is, right? Are they hypoglycemic or they have a narcotic overdose? Yep. Those are gonna be the two main causes that you can reverse on scene. Yep. Um, y'all correct me if I'm wrong, if y'all can think of anything just, else. Just had one like yesterday, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, last thing you want to do is innovate somebody with a blood sugar of 30, you know. Yeah. Not saying that they don't need it if they aspirated or something like that, but or that one, know, one, milligram, cells. Cells.
0: <laughs> or one um, milligram of Narcan would have woken up.
1: <laughs> yeah. Um, and then construct a plan. You know, like you were saying, like, man, it really takes the weight off your shoulders. Um, it kind of gets everybody in the mindset of like, hey, this we're about to always have this patient. You know, you can look at somebody like, okay, they got airway. I'm gonna do the monitor and vital signs. You're like, okay, they got that. I'm gonna do, you know, IV and do fluid resuscitation, right? So it's more of a team approach. Um, and so, really, if you're in that mindset, like it kind of rolls kind of aside themselves, you know. Um, and then have backup airways. You know, have backup plans to prepare equipment. And then, obviously, the most important part is have you address their oxygenation and hemodynamic status. Now getting into our medications, paralysis with induction. Um, so our two induction medications are ketamine and atomide, right? And then we have our paralytic, which is rocuronium. Uh, not going to get into the whole sucks versus rock argument right now, yeah. but uh, we are very pro rock. Rock is um, better. Yeah. So our dosages for ketamine is one mg per kg of ideal body weight, um, and atomide is 0.3 mg per kg. And Best EMS really made it easy on us with uh, not having to really calculate atomide, right? Best yeah that's it's interesting, interesting. <laughs> um but basically what we like to say is you know i'm a pretty small guy so i would get 10 milligrams sure. lane would get 20 yeah. and then you know your larger patients out there probably six four six two would get 30 milligrams of atomide. yeah um so it kind of makes it easy on you um what i am 6'2. Oh, you are 60? Yeah. Oh, okay. Kind
0: of, kind of a smaller guy. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah, but you're, uh, you're, you're a smaller Anyways. You know. Yeah. <laughs>
1: um, so obviously, you want to give your induction agent first and then follow it by your paralytic, and then we're going to get into that here in a second. Um, people often ask, like, okay, well, do you want to go, like, what's your justification on going to ketamine versus autominate? Well, I like to make this process as easy as I can on myself and for others. So what I say is if they have, like, a normalish blood pressure, I usually go ketamine. Right, and if they're hypertensive, I'll go atomide. Now, I'm not getting into the whole argument about does ketamine increase ICP. We know it hasn't been proven or anything like that. Just I think using a lot my of the things with
2: ketamine have been debunked. About yeah, no, no, no. ketamine so is very, very, very. It's a uh,
0: it's a horse tranquilizer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um,
1: but atomide is also a very, very good induction agent. You just have to be very aware that it
2: lasts three to five minutes. Yeah. Okay, I think with some of that data, the new data coming out, like atomide, you know is as safe if not maybe even safer than ketamine but we'll kind of yeah. see how that yeah. plays out
1: yeah um the rockeronium obviously it's one make per kid uh
2: for now um so I think one important thing is all of these are weight based and they're all ideal body weight so I don't know if we're not figure that out so if I have, yeah. if
0: I have a 500 pound
1: patient I'm not supposed to give you know whatever, yeah 200, milligrams
0: 250 ketamine. 250 milligrams of
1: ketamine yeah yeah, yeah. yeah um no so obviously there's a lot of ideal body weight or ideal body weight charts out there um i got this from uh the flight bridge vent book and it makes it super easy because it's all an estimate anyways unless you have a tape measure on hand and you're measuring exactly how the elevation is yeah. right so that whole 2.2 or 2.3 per kilo again all, decimals yeah what we do is if you are five foot you should weigh 50 kilos mm. Every inch over that, you just times it by two. So if you're 5'10, 10 10 times two would be 20. 20 plus 50 would be 70. Their ideal body weight should be 70. I mean, that's a lot of math,
0: but
2: it's easier than the 2.3. It is,
1: right. Yeah.
2: Like he was saying, the Atomidate, you know, it lasts three to five minutes. So if you had RS item, you secured your tube, you need to already be drawn up for medications for post sedation. Yeah. So just, you know, be cognizant of that. When you're
1: using rocuronium or succinylcholine, right, you need to be managing pain and sedation because they are now paralyzed yeah. and they do have they don't have any pain or sedation on board.
2: Yeah. and if you're you know if your normal patients, if your atomidine ketamine is lasting about thirty seconds or the onset's about thirty seconds, um, there's a thing called sedation lag. So with rock, if it takes fifty to sixty seconds on a normal patient to start working. You're going to have a little buffer in there that they could be somewhat sedated and before they're paralyzed so they might not be breathing as adequately and you might not be able to put a laryngoscope way. in their mouth um, so instead of flushing the line after you give an induction agent i would be flushing your paralytic with right after your induction agent yeah um, just so you try to reduce that time as much as possible
1: our biggest thing with the equipment just goes back to training. Like if you, I want we require all of our guys to get all of this equipment out when they're practicing to build that muscle memory um, before they actually go on these calls. Because if you know all of this stuff secondhand, you can adjust to that trauma patient who has missing, you know, a missing jaw, or maybe it's a pediatric where your um, your heart rate's going to be through the roof, right? Um, but just back on the equipment, it's BVM, P valve, inline. You know, in title, um, and I like to hook all that stuff up, and I have a certain place in the truck. Like me and him, set up the exact same way on RSI. It's like I know that that BVM right there is going to be to the right of me. Mm-hmm. I know I'm going to have my video laryngoscope. The screen going to be sitting on the action wall. The ET tube is going to be under the patient's right shoulder, along with suction.
0: We should probably clarify here. We use a we use a co pilot video laryngoscope right now, which has a uh, about a three foot cord mm-hmm. from the laryngoscope to the to the screen. Uh, yeah. So it's it's basically a GlideScope for the back yeah. of an ambulance. Yeah. So.
1: Um, you know, your ET tube sizes, uh, for now, um, cause we were hearing a little bit of literature about, uh, trauma to the trachea with larger ET tube sizes, but basically men, men get eight, women get 7.5. Um, if you're pediatric, you know, you can always do that, that calculation or get your hand heavy app out or get your bras tape out, but basically it's age, um, plus 16 divided by four. Um, bougie versus rigid stylet, suction is a big one. So when our guys go through credentialing, if you do not have the suction out and you are not suctioning the patient's airway whenever you drop a laryngoscope, you, you felt, you don't get credentialed, right? That's just one of the big, one of the big small so points. You don't want
0: suction to be like opened out of the package. You want it on connected and you want the yonker yes. or the uh, Ducanto yes. on the stretcher like behind the patient? Yes, yeah. I
1: put it underneath the patient's right shoulder yeah. along with the ET tube in the package. And when I drop the laryngoscope, I'm also suctioning at the same time, right? Because um, I can't tell you how many times where maybe you've gotten a little sputum built up from bag valve mass ventilations, or maybe they just have a little bit of secretions in their airway to begin with,
2: right? You just It's better to have it and just suction out make it easier on yourself. Um, I think everybody's been in the situation where they didn't have it at least once. Yep. And it's like, hey, I'm in here. I need the suction right now. And it takes 15, 20 seconds for you to... Find the button to turn the vacuum on, and then right. trying to hook it all up and find it, and it's just—it's the difference. You already between, needed it. It's yeah. the difference between one attempt and yeah. two
0: attempts most of the time. Yeah. if you need it, because yeah. yep. you got to just, just
2: have it out every single again, time. Again, it's
1: your success in RSIs size and the details, and that is a very, yeah. very big, pronounced one. detail that you have to have out. Then um, obviously your eye gel—you know—have your backups out. Um, if I, the way we teach it, you know, if you have somebody who sat 100%, it wasn't hard to pre-oxygenate them, just have your eye gel out in the package. If you want to unpackage it, that's fine. Yeah. But if I have somebody with limited reserves, I'm gonna have it out, gelled up, you know, lubed up and yeah. ready to go. Um, and if it's a burn patient or maybe uh, anaphylaxis patient, whether you have an active strider drooling, non-verbal, stuff like that, um, have that thing out, maybe it's you, a double setup. You've got I a mean, scalpel right, yeah. yeah.
2: Multiple tube sizes. Yeah. Um, there's our co-pilot, um, here's your yearly reminder on practicing with DL, any technology can fail. Mm-hmm. So you're not gonna realize how much you needed to practice with your DL until yeah. technology fails. Yeah. So practice with it, um, put yourself in those different situations in the training room. Yeah. Um, I mean, huge,
1: I think we all are huge fans of video laryngoscopes. Yeah. Um, you know, our success rates, you know, five years ago were, you know, low 70s. Yeah and uh, not saying that that's contributed to going vl but it takes a difficulty on innovation so if you think about it i think we all know this when you go in with direct laryngoscopy you're actually manipulating airway you're pushing anatomy out of the way um with video laryngoscope you're working around a curve right so even obese patients you're not having to lift up their jaw and you're not struggling and shaking you know trying to visualize the airway and then bougie and all that um but I think what really goes into success is really mastering one technique. And Scott Weingart really gives a really, really good airway lecture on mastering one technique and being proficient at that one technique. Not, not saying you don't need to have your, you know, not practice with your DL. But if you master one technique, your success rates are going to go through the roof.
2: I think one thing with ours, since it is going around a curve and you have the bougie, it's got a, like a little pretty, you know, slot in there for it to go around. If it pops off or you have some other blade that doesn't have a track on it, Using a bougie, you might be able to get it on the mannequin, maybe some patients, but rigid stylet might be the way to go on that because you're around a curve. It's yeah. difficult. It's not a direct line of sight. You could be messing around way too long for what you yeah. should be. So, yeah,
0: I, I love the rigid stylet. I, I always do it. I always do a double setup. I have the mm-hmm. bougie ready to go, but like options. Nine uh, times yeah. nine times out of ten, the rigid stylet does it just
1: fine. So. Yeah, no, I'm ten out of ten. I don't like the bougie, but. Okay, so innovation innovation positioning. Um, so, you know, in a good world um, or in a perfect situation, your patient was sitting up at 90 degrees, you're pre-oxygenating for three to five minutes, right? Everything has been addressed: uh, oxygenation, hemodynamics, right? You fluid resuscitated, all that good stuff. Yeah, you're at sea Right like now, all it's all time the part. party, yeah. right? Yeah. So, you have your induction agent drawn up, you have your paralytic drawn up, you push your induction, flush it with your rock, warm with a flush. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then as your induction agent starts to hit, right? So we know our automate hits in 30 seconds, our ketamine's roughly 30 to 40 seconds as well, um, but our is gonna be 60 seconds. When that 30 seconds, or when you start seeing your patients start being sedated, drop them down to the 30 degrees, right? Put a blanket under their head to help them get into more ear to sternal knots positioning. Um, and then have somebody take the non-breather off and innovate them at 30 degrees head elevation, right? So it's still gonna keep their weight off their diaphragm. You're gonna be able to ventilate that patient a lot easier, right, versus them laying flat. Because remember what we said earlier was they lose approximately 30 to 50 milliliters of, or no, sorry, what was it again? 30 to? 30 to 50. Yeah, 30 to 50 milliliters of tidal volume when laying flat. Um, and then once you get them, them innovated, secure, Verify with the end right it's a gold standard and then tube tamer and c collar in place just so for patient neck movement Uh, So here's some lateral x-rays of what the proper sniffing position is i'm not going to go over all those um, But if you look at the bottom right hand corner of that x-ray that they pattern the patient's head while also doing a head delt chin lift um, And it aligns the airway right it goes straight from your fair neck straight to the trachea or straight from the mouth opening to the trachea It's just more in line so
2: So right position,
1: right? Yeah, Um, a lot of people are like, well, how do we accomplish this in the truck? Well, you might have to MacGyver it, right? Mm -hmm. If you have a patient who is obese like this, you might be padding from the very lower back all the way up to the top of the stretcher to get that ear to strutal notch positioning, right? It's got to align that airway. Again, this is another detail. This might be, especially in pediatrics, that will definitely be, or positioning is, uh, might be whether you fail or you're successful, right? Um Lane shared a good video with me on this. Uh I want to go back to positioning and padding, but for pediatrics, you know, we often learn that you pattern eat the patient's shoulder blades and then that's your optimal view or your optimal uh, patient position Well, um innovating a few period pediatrics over the last few years, I've always noticed that the patient's head drops completely back and it's hyperextended. Mm-hmm. So I'll pattern the shoulders and I'll kinda Pattern underneath the head as well. Actually might even pattern underneath the head a little bit more to kind of get them in a head elevated positioning and then head tilt chin lift when I go to drop the scope. So I think it's a very important especially when you're going DL about lining up the airways um, Placement with proof right so Take your time. We like to tell people, like, you set yourself up for success, right? You pre oxygenated for at least three to five minutes, right? So you increased your safe apnea period. So it's going to give you a little extra time to, you know, handle a difficult airway. Sure. Um, you're suctioning, you've addressed hemodynamics, right? All you have to do is innovate. Um, you suction before and during the tempt. Uh, tube depth should be approximately three. Uh, three times the ET tube size. Um, that's not a set rule, right? Because yeah, everybody has a different anatomy. What we like to tell people is you, once you see the black line on the ET tube, go past the vocal cords, yep. you're done. Yep. Right? Um, and then confirm within title capnometry and waveform, gold standard. I know that this has been hit hard over the last five to 10 years. Um, and we tell our guys that it's not what you see, it's what you can prove and you yep. can prove your entitled catnography waveform and your digital reading you can't if you walk into a er and it's an esophageal innovation and your excuse is well i saw it go through the vocal cords well nobody cares yeah. or nobody gives a shit what you saw yeah
0: it's what you can prove absolutely um, i like to uh, as part of my handoff report like right before we take them off our monitor mm-hmm. i like to call it out right before we take yep. them off like hey guys entitled right now is you know 38 um, mm-hmm. you know And if there's a, usually there's a nurse or a doctor close to the monitor and and I'll actually, I'll point at it like, hey, and then take it off and move it over because at that point it's on, it's on them, you know, and, and I feel like you mitigate a little bit of uh, a possible finger pointing. You did.
1: Because if all else fails and the tube was dislodged, um, all you have to do is like, well, y'all heard me call at the end time. Like, yeah, we heard you call it out. I'm like, yeah, he said that. Like, okay, well then our tube was good, right? And so just to piggyback what what you're saying, like we tell our medics, like, you transfer a care, show them the monitor, call out your entire, like you said, yeah. right? And
2: then take everything off. Hit yeah. print? Yeah, hit print. <laughs> um, and then secure it with a C collar and a tube tamer. Use a commercial tube tamer. You no, know I mean, people tape it, but use a little bit better device if you have it.
1: Uh, so just going over a little bit of waveform capnography, um, we're not going to go over all the phases, but some of these are pretty important, like the esophageal in- intubation, right? You might get a little intidal, maybe four, maybe yeah. max five, but I promise you, it's going to dissipate. It's yeah. going to go to zero. There is no cellular respiration going on in the patient's stomach, right? Yeah. So if you don't have an intidal reading, you need to pull your tube, reevaluate. You know, Maybe you need to put it in an eye gel, whatever the case may be, depending on your disease process or what you're working with. Um, obviously, your normal ranges are 35 to 45. Um, we're real big into talking to our guys about rebreathing or breast stacking, especially with obstructive patients like maybe an asthmatic or a COPD, and how to watch out for those things. Um, uh, curare cleft. I know Dr. nortime is huge on this. If you see a curari cleft, which means inadequate sedation, mm-hmm. um, which should never happen because we tell our medics, you know, be liberal with pain and sedation, do it earlier, and once you get to the hospital, I would do it again. Um, because it's going to take a while for that doctor to put in orders. Maybe that person's got to get a chest x ray. Maybe they're going to go to CT. It might be 30, 45 minutes, maybe even an hour. And especially if they're on ocaronium, they might be freaking paralyzed and no sedations on board. So yeah. when we get to the hospital, we try to redose them you know, immediately. Um, not really going to go over bronchospasms. We all know what shark fitting is. Yep. Um, significant head injury, right? We try to keep our entitle at 35.
2: Um, you can go into that. I mean, it basically, doing that causes vasoconstriction. Th- you know, doesn't increase the amount of blood flow into the brain, which would obviously not be a good idea. Right. Just yeah. Kind of keeping ICP down.
0: We're not doing this whole, you know, like they're entitled twenty when we get to the hospital. Um, you know, severe vasoconstriction can actually yeah. worsen the the situation. Thirty five. Yeah. is the target. Yeah. Uh, hypercapnia is is what we're trying to avoid. Hypocapnia yeah. is kind of just.
1: Yeah. Uh, and then dk right we hit this one pretty hard because if you are going to have a kill in the field it's a dka patient yeah. right somebody who's in severe metabolic acidosis um, and you don't match their end title sure. or, and or rate you know uh, you could definitely kill that person we'll go over that here in a little bit so although this is panicking when you say it right a little anxiety hits your voice whenever you say yeah. this what happens if you miss that not miss right <laughs> Oh, better know. Sure. Go. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, but we like to tell our guys, like, so what if you do miss, right? Don't panic. Relax. You got the BVM out. You did have that oxygen saturation 100%. Just relax, back them back up. You'll be fine. But the first thing that should hit your mind when you miss is that you need to change something, yep. right? Whether that's positioning. What did you see in the airway, right? Was it, do you need suctioning? Were you able to visualize? If you weren't, you probably need to position again. Um, uh maybe it's the innovator yeah right um it would never be me maybe you're too maybe (laughs) maybe you're
0: too amped up yeah maybe maybe somebody else
1: yeah Yeah. um you know and i know this sounds kind of you know elementary you know something like your your mom or dad would say or maybe your school teacher but insanity is doing the same thing over and over again expecting the same results right so we tell our guys if you miss change something and this has bit me bit me in the ass before you know when i First became a paramedic, so I've been
0: there as well. Yeah. Oh, actually,
1: I think the calls with you actually. (laughs) (laughs) So I I might remember that (laughs) one. Yeah. So change something. All right. So your post innovation management. uh, Obviously, the two things you have to worry about at at post innovation is worrying about or treating pain and sedation, right? And so our three drugs that we give uh, is ketamine versus and fentanyl, right? Not saying you need to give all three. Um, a lot of our medics make it easy and just give ketamine because it treats pain and sedation. Um, but, you know, you can also go Versed, but if you do go Versed, you have to give fentanyl because it only treats sedation, right? Yeah. Um, I find I find it a lot here lately that I'll be using all three, not at once, but like let's say if somebody gets, you know, pretty hypertensive about the ketamine, I'll go fentanyl, fentanyl, Versed, afterwards. Um, just the biggest thing that I've seen and I think we've gotten a lot better at over the years is being pretty liberal with it. Yeah. Like the last thing you want to do is risk anesthetic awareness while somebody's freaking paralyzed. If they have the room in
0: their in their vital signs, you know, if they have the room yeah. in their blood pressure, yeah, make sure they're comfortable. Yeah,
2: and that I might mean increasing your pressors or whatever yeah. else you got going on. Yeah. That, that might that mean, mean can adding can a if you need to. Yeah. Um,
1: we have our infusions, uh, ketamine infusion and burst yeah. infusions. Ketamine uh,
0: infusion is one of the best tools we it have. Is. It, it
1: is. It really is. Um, what I'll say is, like, uh, just to clarify any confusion out there. Um, Is you have to get that patient to a therapeutic threshold with push dose before
2: you hang the drip, right? Yeah.
1: yeah. So um,
0: if your patient is trying to pull the tube out, starting them on a on a one yeah. one per kig infusion of ketamine is probably work. not it. Yeah. Nope. No.
2: So yeah, get that loading dose of your IV push yeah. in there first, and then work on mixing your bag. Yeah. Put it on the pump.
1: Um, and then the scariest thing I've ever heard while teaching this stuff is like, oh, you know, the patient's moving around. Why not just redose dose him with a paralytic? And you're mm-hmm. like, wait, what? Yeah, um, last-ditch last That's last-ditch yeah. effort, and it's after you've given a lot of sedation, right? And so I, what I like to tell people is, um, well, I like tell people the story that I had was, uh, you know, I had a post-innovation or I was managing a patient, it was a transfer, and uh, we were sedating this patient with ketamine and Versed, and we could not get there. We, we couldn't put them down. Just they kept moving around and stuff like that. We were I think 400 milligrams deep of ketamine and 10, of ed, 10 or 12 burst said. Um, you know, it starts to become a patient safety issue. Sure, right? right. Or crew safety issue where they're going to rip the tube out or something like that. Just them with the paralytic, just making sure that you manage your pain and sedation continuously. So ventilator management, um, we get into a little bit on this. Although all we have is a pair pack, you know, it's a very uh, yeah. So so minimal. we have
0: so we have the we have the pair pack ventilators on all of our ambulances. Mm-hmm. Uh, we use the Ravel for for our transfers, uh, but yeah, we it's a it's a pneumatic driven yep. device. It's basically right. an automatic. What I tell people is it's an automatic BVM.
1: Yeah. So it is. Um, so yeah, like you were saying, it's just very limited you know you can't really monitor a whole lot of your uh like your pip and your well you can't monitor your pip but like your P plat or your vte or something like that um so what we kind of tell our guys is uh um we go over two strategies we really want to concentrate on the obstructive strategy right um so if you're listening out there you know you basically have two two approaches to your strategy which is your injury approach and your obstructive approach your injury approach is just preventing injury right you just have a patient Who's on the ventilator maybe it's a traumatic or you know maybe it's just you know somebody without an instructive disease process sure um so what we tell our guys if you have a patient with copd and asthma you want to lower their respiratory rate to keep them from breast stacking right so that might look like a tidal volume of 500 maybe a respiratory rate of 12 right yeah.
0: whereas the injury approach would be like tidal volume of 350 and right respiratory rate of like 20 8, or something. yeah
1: yeah so you're not giving that patient time to exhale, which they start breast stacking. Um, and also, you know, obviously that increases the thoracic pressure, which decreases cardiac output, right, that's where all the bad stuff occurs. Yeah. So by lowering that respiratory rate, extending that e-timeout, um, they have longer to exhale. So it's about as far as we get
2: into. Should and I think eat? with the limited things that you can check on the pair pack, um, that these approaches can make some differences, but ultimately you're gonna be looking at your entitled. And yeah. kind of, you know, basing what changes need to be made off of that. Mm-hmm. So. And you're
1: going to be watching your PIP.
0: Your, your right. PIP, it has a, thankfully, it has a blow-off right. valve, so we can't truly, yeah. like, pop along with it.
1: Yeah. Uh, so what is PIP? Yeah, so PIP, huh. peak yeah. inspiratory pressure. So I'm glad you said that um, <laughs> before we move on. Um, so on the pair pack, right, it has a PIP alarm. Mm-hmm. You know, the gauge actually tells you what the patient's PIP is. But a lot of times people are like, they hear that alarm or they there's a little dial in there where you can sit the PEP the PIP where you're actually setting the alarm, yeah. right? So if you hear the alarm, don't ignore it, right? That's don't bad. up your alarm to a hundred. It's trying to tell you something, right? And so we use, I think like everybody else's, the dope mnemonic. Um, well, I guess let me go back and explain PIP real quick. So peak inspiratory pressure, basically, and don't shoot me for this, but it is the maximum amount of pressure that it takes to deliver that volume of gas or that, that, that volume of breath, okay. right? Yeah. So what will make, things well, what will make a pip high right so anything that will increase that pressure so let's say if somebody's inadequately sedated and they're breathing against the vent well now that volume of gas has a harder time being delivered so that'll increase right so make sure that your patient's sedated uh maybe the patient developed a pneumothorax right so now that lung is collapsed now that now that that ventilator has a higher pressure to go against to deliver that volume of gas. So maybe you developed a pneumo. Maybe you need to dart that patient. Now, I guarantee you, you probably have to dart them continuously right to the hospital if they do develop a pneumo, right? Because now they're under positive pressure ventilation. It um, could
2: be or, suctioning or yeah, somebody yeah. just, like, lifted the arm rail up and it pinched the tubing in there. Yeah. I mean, it yeah. could be the tube yeah. is kinked somewhere. Or
0: the, yeah. the ET tube has flopped over and is now, <laughs> yeah. is now kinked off. So maybe. if you did see
2: a low or a high pressure or a pimple arm, just start from the patient and start checking every single thing all the way up to the ventilator. And yep. It's a good way to not miss yep. something.
1: And all if all of those fells, take them off the ventilator, put them on the UDM. Yes. Um, what about a low PIP? And so if you have a low PIP, right, let's say that's just a good question. for an example, you. your PIP was, let's say, 18. And then in route, you notice it's five, you know, maybe it's, 10, it's fine. Yeah. and you're like, oh, that's not right. <laughs> yeah. And so what would cause a low PIP? Well, an air leak, right? Mm-hmm. And maybe your cuff, I would check the cuff, maybe your tube has become dislodged or maybe it's at the opening of the, or maybe it's at the glottic opening, maybe it just migrated a little bit. Um, so anything basically what's, uh, that's gonna lessen the pressure that that volume of, ha- volume of gas has to get through or that volume of breath. So um, moving on, so reassessment, right? Obviously you've got to continually monitor patients, uh, uh, ET2 placement, sedation, pain, and bottle signs. Um, uh, we already went over the dope mnemonic for uh, high pip readings or or low pip readings, um, and then oxygenation, oxygenation, and tidal CO2 adjustments. Right, so oxygenation, you're gonna only two things. Like we said earlier, that affect oxygenation is PEEP and FiO2. So I made the mistake on the pair pack of doing air mix, which is 50% FiO2, um, and the patient's oxygen saturation got down to like. 88, 90%, I'm like, what is going on here? They were at yeah. 100 a while ago, right? Yeah. So I'm trying to, you know, go through everything, like, listen to lung sounds, make sure I'm not right main stem, I look at my end title, like, okay, the tube's good. Um, it's connected to f- oxygen. I'm like, oh, it's at 50% FiO2 yeah. on a patient I just innovated. So check that. Yeah, um, so we leave them at 100% until yeah. leave in the hospital. Yeah, I always, mean, right, yeah. The very last part of our, our slideshow or our presentation goes over special considerations, and we just talked to our paramedics about you know, like your different approaches for this. Like, so let's say if you have a COPD patient, right? So, uh, I think one of the problems we get into with COPD patients is waiting to start non-invasive positive pressure ventilation, right? Um, I like to tell people that if I walk into a room and I see somebody tripoding, and they're pale, diaphoretic, they're uh, nowhere dipeaning, right? They're obviously like maybe pursed breathing, right? They're trying to retain that peak. I could care less about what the oxygen saturations and title are right this second. Mm-hmm. Not saying they're very valuable. Obviously, you want yeah. those things. But my first, the first thing I'm going to do is grab a CPAP biPAP, and I'm slapping on the patient immediately. Coach them through it while somebody else is getting my vital signs. Because I can always switch gears and take it off yeah. if something else is changing. But you know, just being proactive, you know, it goes back to your decision making. Being proactive and setting yourself up for, up for success um, is going to help you out in the long run. Uh, you know with the COPD patient it might take you longer to pre-oxygenate um, I'd probably go ketamine for my induction definitely for post-innovation sedation for bronchodilation um, Maybe you're going to use the obstructive approach on the ventilator, right? So they don't breast stack on you on the way to the hospital This could be a DSI situation because what happens when somebody gets real anxious and they're hypoxic Hypoxic their their had their anxieties through the roof and they're trying to rip the mask off. right? Sure um, CHF patients um, you know, you might need peep. I know you have a, t- a couple terrible stories where you had somebody who had uh, flash pulmonary edema yeah. and bloody, frothy sputum was coming out the tube and suction wasn't happening or yeah. it wasn't taking care of it. Yeah, right? For some
0: reason, it just kept coming out. <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah,
1: So that might be a situation where you add um, more peep, right? You might get up to 20 of peep trying to increase yep. that, um, that surface area to push the blood back out. Um,
0: yeah, every time you disconnect to suction, you lose all the recruitment you had. Yeah. So, uh, peep is better than suction in those situations. 100 yeah. um,
1: 100. With your TBI, um, you know you have to you have to know that uh, you have to keep their entitle at 35, right? Along with head elevation, and uh, um, loosen C collar. the C collar because that increases ICP. So, things you have to worry about. Um, stroke patients, you might have to switch gears and manage blood pressure a little bit. Right, you might have to give some some beta law. Uh, maybe go atomidate if their pressure is pretty high. Uh, maybe go fentanyl verset afterwards. Yep, fentanyl
0: verset is, is my <coughs> favorite for for
1: you know stroke patients you oh, debate. Yeah. So, I
0: mean, it doesn't drop their pressure, but it definitely brings it down a little bit and yeah. takes the edge off for sure.
2: So. On the pregnancy and OBC patients, you know we talked about earlier about decreased time to desaturation. You might do everything right, they're still going to have a shorter window mm-hmm. than anybody else. Yep. So it's just. You gotta think about that and that doesn't mean rush through it, but do everything that we've talked about, fitting up yeah. and trying to be successful. I think
0: one thing that's really important for, for probably, you know, guys like us that have big egos, uh, is not letting your ego necessarily get in the way, you know. Like let's oh, say yeah. let's say you have this, you know, pregnancy patient or pregnant patient or obese patient and you're you're trying to innovate and you're like, I never miss. Yeah. And you can't get it for whatever yeah, reason. No. If they don't have a contraindication for an eye gel, mm-hmm. Put an 100%. agile in. Like, like let it go. Put an agile in. Because That's, like you like Lane was just saying, yeah. like you don't have a big one. Yeah. So
1: And you know in scary situations like that, you know, it's been said over and over and over again, like you get tunnel vision. Mm-hmm. You get tunnel vision and time is just not you're not keeping track of time like you should be. Yeah. Um and so it's always good to have a team approach like, Hey, your oxygen saturation 92 percent. Okay, I'm gonna fill the airway now. Yeah. Back out, start bagging and like you said, progress in IGEL if you need to. Yeah. Um um, so moving on to DKA, so we're gonna all lead with this. You should try not to ever intubate somebody with DKA, right? Um, because can, these I are the count, ones that yeah. you, you can kill. Um, uh, we have a crew here who did it. Um, who killed and, them? No, 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 no. Who no. <laughs> intubated a DKA patient? And they did a really good job. Yeah, um, I heard about that one. So. As far as setting up your DKA patient, so let's just go into the pathophysic of so DKA. Just a little shout bit. out to uh, Zach and Denise. Yeah, shout, shout out to, to Zach you. and Denise. Um, and that really hurts me to say that. Yeah. Uh, but obviously, um, we're not going to go too far into the patho, but they're you know metabolic acid metabolic acidosis, right? So they're breathing off CO2 to uh, keep their pH in a normal range or in a somewhat normal range. That's how they're compensating. Sure. So, long story short, if you innovate that person and uh, they were breathing, at, let's say, 30 to 40 times a minute, and you put them on the vent at a respiratory rate of 16, which is going to increase their entitle, which is the way they were compensating, right? Their entitle is going to go through the roof, which is going to shift their pH in the opposite direction. They're going to die. Yeah, absolutely. Right? So, so do
0: you want to match their respiratory rate or their entitle?
1: I would try to match their entitle
0: before they were so before
1: and I would also count their respirations because and Lane does a very good job of explaining this is when you take somebody take somebody's ventilations over um, or you paralyze them right what they were breathing
2: at is not the same quality as what we're giving them with the ventilator right They you could have been taking shallow breaths yeah so they're 40 a minute and if we put them 40 on the vent or bag them at 40 times a minute it's not going to be the same yeah so they're their just be the same. Yeah, ultimately, no watching the end title.
0: I'm right. not. I don't really want to put somebody on 40, 50 breaths a minute on an event. Like I, that's. Yeah. I typically tell people 30 is really the the safe yeah. max on our events.
1: Yeah, I would just say try to match their end title the best you can. You know. Um, so yeah, that's with DK, He went over obesity, right? Burns. Uh, you know, I would be a lot more proactive with these than I am with most. Um, so just the situation that I was in, um, patient was. Uh, had like a flash burn from like a bonfire. Um, really, nothing inside the the mouth, but he had like singed nose hair. What really made my decision is he had second, third degree burns to his neck, which was swelling up. So, although he didn't have any airway burns um, that I could see, we went ahead and took his airway, um, just because you have to be a good clinician and be a uh, you know be able to predict you know the downfall and uh, what do you call it. Um,
0: Projected clinical course? Yeah. yeah. You had that swelling neck, though. I mean, yeah. like, that's, yeah. Yeah. that's concerning. Yeah.
1: Um, so <laughs> documentation, right? It's really big um, in any patient, but specifically with RSI, right? Because we are, um, uh, I guess, under a microscope, as yeah. you would say, well, I mean, you're, as far you're... as RSI is concerned, especially in the pre-hospital setting, and we're just paramedics. You know, we have to document, you know, how we did
0: it. The, the patient has a significant amount of risk. I mean. Right.
1: So. Um, so, we do the the why. So, why was it performed? Don't just write your narrative and assume that we are going to know, or whoever's QA in the chart, or whoever's looking at the chart is going to assume why the patient was innovated. You have to specifically put. So, I think it's pretty safe to say that most, if not all, your patients you put, you know, uh, patient was innovated due to uh, poor clinical course or ventilatory failure, um, uh, then move on to the you know, who performed the procedure? We like to tell our people that state this specifically like, you know, paramedic Lane Matheny made the decision to perform RSI secondary to blah, 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 right? And then how was it performed, right? Going to, you know, as far as like, I, I want to be, to be very detailed like, patient was set up or seated at 90 degrees, pre-oxygenated with such such devices for hour or long. Um, you push whichever medications. Did you have any? Um, complications during your attempt. If no, state that specifically, right? No complications were noted in an innovation attempt or patient was suctioned to due to blah, 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 blah.
2: And um, another thing on the how it's, if you did do the DSI or RSA, explain that mm-hmm. because if you just try to look at your flow chart or how the meds were given, you know, we,
1: we don't, don't know, know that.
2: We want you to say it so we know that your you know your mindset on the call why it was you know different than a normal rsi Mm -hmm.
1: yeah um and then obviously you know you need to put how you you document how you reconfirmed right we try to get the er physician to sign an airway confirmation you know now some of them kind of wait till want to wait till the x-ray even though we show them in title yeah. Even though they it listen to lung sounds, they're right. like, okay, I've got yeah.
0: good lung sounds, no epigastric. Right. Uh, let me get an extra. Yeah, okay.
1: I love it whenever they listen to lung sound, like, oh, yeah, it's fine. But, you know, they're not messing with the airway, but they won't sign the chart. You know what I mean? They're yeah. like, so i got to get. Yeah. Well, I've had
0: I've had pretty good experience over the last couple of years, honestly, with that, yeah. though. Like, I feel like maybe <laughs> they're getting used to us getting that signature. Yeah. I don't know. But yeah. I, I definitely had a lot of grief. I got a lot of grief for that one, definitely yeah. like three or four years ago. Yeah. People didn't want to sign that. So. Yeah.
2: But a lot of this stuff is just to cover yourself, you know, for the patient's medical record, so everything we know,
1: you
2: know.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I mean, if there's a complication, like, we need to be able to, you know, prove, hey, you know, it wasn't on us, or, hey, you know, we, we had a good reason to take this person's airway.
1: Yeah. Um, so that was the end of our presentation. Um, so that's just the way we do things here at PCHDMS, um, And I think just if you were kind of condense it all down into one, it's, you know, it's education and more importantly, it's, it's practice. Like you have to practice. I think that's why we are so good in our success rates are 94 or 95% on our first attempt, which is unheard of for EMS um, or or rare, as I'd like
2: to say. Um, And it goes down to how you practice, right? I think you can have a lot of different, you know, complications, you know, uh, somebody's vomiting or, you know, obese, but it's how you handle everything up to that. If you've practiced scenarios, you've done training, you're mm-hmm. familiar with your equipment, you can kind of combat all those issues and yeah. you know and not be caught with branch down. Yeah,
1: and what we love to say, I'm glad you said that, uh, is you're. I promise you, you're not gonna, you're not gonna pull these skills out of your ass. Yeah. On the fly during a difficult situation. Yeah. I promise you, you're not. You it know? doesn't. It doesn't happen like that. You're, like, you're not all all of a sudden become a superhero whenever shit hits the fan. So, yeah, um, yeah, yeah.
0: And I, I think it's interesting. You know, this whole airway class. Uh, I think it's it's interesting because so little of it is actually focused on putting the laryngoscope in the mouth yeah. and intubating. It. Well, I, it almost it, almost none of it is. Yeah. It's it's all about the it's all about the entire
1: yeah picture
0: and making sure you cover your yeah. Faces. So
1: when we were making this presentation, Lane was real big into, uh, you know, I want people to have the mindset, Mm -hmm. you know, and, you know, the mindset and understanding of what it takes to become successful, right? It's not, you can read something a thousand times, but until you actually do it, are you, you know, are you really good at it? No, like you got to practice, right?
0: The the RSI's that I've been on that have, that I've felt the most, that I felt were the most successful, Mm -hmm. were the, the best performed, whatever you want to call it, were the ones where we literally like... I mean, yeah, we knew we were gonna RSI, but it was it was kind of on the back burner and we were all just, you know, doing IVs, mm-hmm. pressors, fluid, you know, just yeah. everything else. And then once we got there, we got there. Yeah. But I, I think, you know, when you're when all you can think about is putting that tube in, then yeah. You're gonna miss some stuff.
1: Yeah. Yeah. No. So I hope you all enjoyed well, it. Yeah.
0: I, I enjoyed I enjoyed yeah. talking to you guys. Yeah. 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 Thank you for uh, for going over this with us. I know you guys yeah. have done it probably like what, twenty times at this yeah. point. Yeah, uh, this yeah. So I mean, really, you should be you should be better at it. You know? <laughs> uh, yeah. No, but thank you guys. Yeah, we're new to this, so you know, forgive us for uh, not knowing. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah. So
1: trying to hide my hands because they were shaking a little bit. Uh, you yeah. know, you just sometimes don't know what to do with your yeah. hands. So it goes <laughs> back <from> to performance <laughs> anxiety, man. You know. Just, yeah. <laughs> well,
0: thank you guys for listening and/or watching, and uh, you guys be safe out there. This has been an episode of the PCHD EMS podcast. Thank you for joining us.